It was a good week. Wow, I've got double mics here. <laughs> it was a really exciting week to work with the young people that I, I get to, to pray with every Wednesday, and then we get to share in the Word together every Sunday and Wednesday, but then get to get out and serve Jesus Christ. It was really exciting, lots of fun. And I just want to thank you, say thank you for giving me the privilege to, to work with your young people to shepherd them, to guide them in the way of Jesus Christ. It's a blast, and I love it. And Stephanie and I and Hudson and Everlyn, too, are excited to be here. And uh, it's hard to believe, but it won't be long before Hudson's involved in all of this. Time is flying, flying by. Uh, The busier we get, the faster it goes. But um, I just, we need to pray really quick. I got a quick memo just before I came up here from Pastor Discerns that Adele Bacon collapsed at Alex Scully's graduation party this afternoon and uh, don't know exactly what the prognosis is, but I believe we should pray for her right now. So let's lift her up in prayer. If you could bow with me. Gracious God, we come before you um, not knowing exactly what is going on with Adele. We pray, Father, that that you would minister to her, that you would watch over her. Would you give the doctor's uncanny wisdom and to understand the health situation that she's going through right now. We pray that your healing touch would be upon her and that you bring yourself glory in that. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember one day when I was really, really proud of my dad. I'm proud of my dad generally every day, but there was one day in particular as a young teenage boy when I was really, really proud of my dad. We were on a family reunion near Tawas. Anybody know where Tawas is, right? Northern Michigan. My dad's side of the family has had cabins up there for a long time. And we had this family reunion out by this little inland lake. And by the lake was a little sailboat. A little sailboat, like a one or two person sailboat. You might call it like a sunfish. If some of you sail, you know what I'm talking about. And my dad's cousins. Now, these guys are all now like 45, 50, 55 years old. And they're trying to show how man they are by getting the sailboat out into the lake. I remember one of my dad's cousins hopping into the boat. He was slightly oversized. And so you think, small sailboat, one small sail in a little lake. The wind's blowing really hard towards us. So he hops in the boat and he's trying to battle against the wind, fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to like twist it and turn it and just go like ten times. Ten, yeah, he was not a happy camper. <laughs> and then I saw my dad, who grew up kind of around the water. My brother and I were standing there like, hey, Dad, I was 13, 14 years old. Can you do that thing? My dad hopped in the sailboat, looked at the wind, adjusted the sails, set the boat on the water, hopped in and straight out in the lake, like, my dad is awesome. He just showed all his cousins up. He was dependent on the wind. Instead of combating the wind, he depended on the wind. He just adjusted his sails, knew how to rely on the wind, even if it was blowing against him, actually. And he just headed straight off in the lake. I don't know how he did it. He needs someday before I get too old and crotchety or whatever for him to show me how to do that because I never got the lesson. Um, but I remember being in such awe of how he depended on the wind, how he learned 
over time, I'm sure, to learn how to like abide with the wind, depend on the wind, instead of fighting it and fighting it like his cousins. He just went, meow, meow. But we're driven in our lives to fight, to battle, to, to beat it or beat anyone who gets in our way. When, when life comes at us, we choose to kind of get angry sometimes. Because, let's face it, when it comes to living this life in a world system that's driven by money, job success, climbing the corporate ladder, or getting that raise, self-reliance is the name of the game. Maximizing your human potential is how you get the job done. Motivational speakers travel around the country, around the world, and they'll just charge three to $10,000 to tell you how to maximize your human potential. How you can get here if you just do this and this and this and figure out what your skill set is so you can get here. And it's all driven around reliance on ourselves. We rely on ourselves. And somehow, when it comes to business, we seem to think, well, that's okay, I guess. But sadly, and I believe this with all my heart, that many people in the church of Jesus Christ have adopted philosophies centuries-old philosophies that go way back, and business ideologies that strip the gospel of its power because we think we can do it ourselves. We think if we just get organized, get strategized, capitalize on the moment, that we can do it ourselves. We can just fight and combat and get our act together and organize and, yeah, we can get this done. On my Twitter feed, I see these things, these Christian leaders who friend me on Twitter. What is it? Follow you on Twitter. And half the time, it's this kind of stuff, like 12 ways to maximize your pastoral leadership. And I click on their blog, and they're telling me all these great things that they did and maximizing their human potential and all this stuff and how they organize their day and how they do all this stuff and how they lead with great dynamics. That seems like that's the name of the game, not only in the business world, not only in the world system, but often today, it is in the church. And I believe that the church has been given one mission, but we've, we've, we've scathed it. We, we've stripped the gospel of its power or the message of the cross and even ignored the essence of what faith it really is when it comes to following Jesus Christ and being on that mission by relying on philosophies that are rooted in man rather than God. I really believe that. And I fall into that trap because it's just what we hear all the time. Rely on yourself. We can do it ourselves. What I want to talk to you about tonight is this mission impossible, but it's possible. It is only possible one way. The church in Corinth were, the, the, the Corinthians in Corinth, they were believing a similar lie that I think we've found ourselves trapped in. Is that we think we can do it ourselves. So if we get wisdom from those people who travel around, and back in Paul's day, they were called the sophists, from the Greek word sophia, which is the word for wisdom. 
And so if we follow these people and listen to what they say and speak like they speak with great eloquence and, and, and great oratory skill, then that will further the gospel. But Paul rattled their cages big time. More than my dad's cousins had their cages rattled by my dad's sailing. Because what Paul told them about the message of the cross and the mission of the church and how it's accomplished was entirely different than what they had pictured in their minds and it scared them. It rattled their cages. But in the end, Paul's understanding, inspired by the Holy Spirit, shows us as a church and showed the Corinthian church how God's strategy on his mission is accomplished. And there's only one way. There's only one way. That's the big question that, that I tried to impress upon myself and upon all the teens who were involved in NGO this week. That this question of how or what, I'd say, how is God's mission accomplished? What is the strategy that God has set in order for his mission? His mission is going and developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Going and making disciples. Going and making disciples. So if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I want to answer that question. What is the strategy for God's mission? How is it going to be accomplished? How is it going to be accomplished? 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul's writing to people who are enraptured with their own prowess, their own intellect, or their own ability to communicate or they think how they can communicate, and they're, they're trying to get ideas from people in the city of Corinth, which, which if you've done any Bible study, you know Corinth is, was not a pretty place back then. It was surrounded, it was seeped in pagan culture. It was known as sort of the Las Vegas of the day. But add in that, these traveling philosophers, traveling motivational, inspirational speakers who talk these really cool talks, and they're really cool with their Greek vocabulary. Their vernacular is awesome. And they're gaining crowds, and these people are coming to Paul, and they're saying, well, look, like, you know, I want to be on... That team looks really cool. And what does Paul say? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, he reminds them, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, special eloquence, or of wisdom. And that's playing on the idea of these traveling philosophers. It's the same word, sophist, Sophia. Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words, of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now don't miss this last phrase. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now think about this. I read that passage and it's kind of confusing for me. It was confusing for me because I'm thinking, wait a minute. Paul has a really good academic pedigree. If you look over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, he goes down this list of his pedigree, his social standing. And he said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was trained under Gamaliel, who was the foremost teacher of that time in that region. 
He was of the right tribe and, and he knew how to communicate and he was zealous for the cause of the religious culture before Jesus Christ invaded his life. But he said he counted all those things as loss for the sake of following Jesus Christ. And I kind of think, okay, well, Paul, he was with them in weakness and fear and in much trembling. There was a purpose behind it. I don't think Paul was a bad communicator, do you? I mean, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, He was really, really good at communicating the gospel. But he was deliberately saying that if you've got this problem, and we have this problem, that we are driven to be self-reliant. We are driven to be self-reliant. And I want you to know, Paul is saying, that when I came to you, I did not come with fancy words of eloquence. I did not try to match it up with the philosophers of the day. Because I want your faith to not stand in my eloquence or in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God and demonstration of His Spirit and power. And you need to get off this track of relying on yourself to think we can do it ourselves. I fell into this trap. I was in Dallas. Um, This is one of many times I've fallen in the trap of thinking I can do it myself. And we were out with this open-air campaigning team in downtown Dallas, and they taught us in a whirlwind, whirlwind lesson in our missions week down there at Dallas Seminary how to do this three-rope trick. Have you ever tried the three-rope trick? Anybody know the three-rope trick? Maybe, maybe. Okay, I was just the weird one. So the three-rope trick is basically these three red and white ropes. And, and with this trick, you can, you can, they're all the same, they're, they're different lengths, but with this trick, you can make them look like they're all the same length. You're already looking confused. Yeah, I was too. So I'm like, okay, I, I'm, we're going on the bus station. The idea is, um, you go down this thing and you ask somebody, so how, have you sinned? And you go like, well, Adolf Hitler was a really big sinner. His rope is really long. But, you know, Mother Teresa, she probably just sinned a little bit. So her rope is a little shorter. And most people say, well, I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm not a Mother Teresa. I'm not an Adolf Hitler. And they're like, but in God's eyes, all the ropes are the same length, you know. That's the idea behind it, okay? It's fine. You know, I mean, you, I might use it again. But I went down to the bus station, and here I am, and I've got these three ropes. I remember coming up to this 13, 14-year-old Hispanic boy, and I said, I gotta, I'm doing this trick. Can you just watch... He's like, okay. See, senor. So, so I'm like doing this trick, and I can't get it right. So I'm, uh, hold on a minute. Uh, whatever your name is, I got to do my trick again. So I stopped, restarted, tried the trick again. And I'd go this whole thing. I did it like three times, and finally, some of the teens have already heard this, but it, he just looks at me, and he's like, and I still haven't done the trick all the way right. He said, um, can you tell me about Jesus? <laughs> so, guess what? God's Spirit can work even when our plans fail. And in fact, that's how God's Spirit works. The strength is made perfect in our weakness. And actually, believe it or not, that young boy came to faith in Christ at the bus station in downtown Dallas and had nothing to do with my crazy rope trick. 
So I went back to the people on the team, like, the rope trick didn't work, but he came to Christ. And like, well, praise God, you know. We're driven to be self-reliant because this idea pervades our, our culture. We have this mentality that we can do it ourselves. And I wonder how many times I've shown up here, or I've shown up on a missions trip, or I've shown up on some sort of ministry activity and thought, okay, I've got the equipment. You know, I've got the training. I've got the academic pedigree. And God's saying, you missed the whole point. And, and for us, we've been at church. Most of us have grown up going to church and we know the books of the Bible, all 66 books, and we can rattle them off with a tune. And we can say the Romans Road and we can get this down. And we can say it with fancy illustrations or even magic tricks. And somehow we fall into this lie that we can do it ourselves without the Spirit and God's power being demonstrated. And who gets the glory then, I wonder? Not God. My magic trick? I don't know. So we have this problem of being self-reliant. But, but think about this. Jesus called these 12 disciples, some of them of the riffraff crowd, some guys who were just your average lower-income worker, you know, fishing business. Probably kind of smelled after a day's work. But he called them his disciples. He called them to himself to go about this mission. And they were not equipped with fancy lingo and an academic pedigree. And, and Saul, who turned to Paul, had to fall flat on his face before he followed Jesus Christ. Think about this in Peter. Peter, who was called by Jesus Christ, a fisherman, some guy who would probably not really fit into the look and feel of evangel if he just walked through the door. And Jesus Christ called him to, make, to be his disciple. And Peter, this, this bubbling over, overreactive, enthusiastic, kind of crazily passionate guy, he seemed to run ahead of Jesus, even rebuke Jesus, kind of correct him when he couldn't, couldn't understand what was going on. And, and Peter comes to see the risen Christ after he denied him. I want you to look quickly over at Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is Christ's mission to the church. The church that would soon then form and Acts 1.8 says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem. Wait a minute, I'm going to repeat. Somebody's still turning their pages. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, the disciples are asking, uh, when is the kingdom going to be established? Their idea of the kingdom is not wrong, but the timing is wrong, Right? And Jesus responds, he says, it's not for you to know the times of the epochs, but, get this, this is what you're supposed to be about, following me now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. So Peter, who tended to get things wrong and overreacted and ran off and then denied Christ, he's standing there, 
And he gets this mission. You are going to bear witness of me. You are going to share about what I am about to the world. To the world. To the uttermost parts of the world. Even to Rome. And he's standing there, whoa, me? Are you crazy? And the clincher is not in what Peter can do or Thomas with his sometimes weak faith. It's in the power of the Spirit working through these frail, fallible men just like you and just like me. And what happens? Peter goes on and, and, and to, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he goes on to preach like he's never preached before. Maybe it's his first sermon ever. And he walks through God's plan of redemption, how God worked out this plan through Jesus Christ. And you know the story. More than 3,000 souls, more than 3,000 people trusted in Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 2 it says, And now when they heard this, this is after Peter finished his message, uh, let's, verse 36 of chapter 2, Therefore let all of the house of Israel, this is Peter preaching now, know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now verse 37, Now when, you, when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many words he solemnly testified. He kept preaching. All right. So it was longer than just the initial sermon we have here. And kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. One sermon and 3,000 people come to Jesus Christ and exercise faith in him. Whoa, that would be a big baptismal service. I don't know how they even got that done. There was not that much water around there. I mean, there's like, okay, let's line them up. I don't know. 3,000 from Peter, the guy who seemed to get it wrong all the time or get confused or run ahead of the plan. And he preaches through the power of the Spirit. We, church, need to rely not on ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. It's impossible to do it ourselves. It's totally impossible to do it ourselves. But it's possible through God. God's mission can only be accomplished through His power. And that comes by the Spirit. We have to be totally dependent. Totally dependent. Yes, God has given us talents and gifts, but they're not for ourselves. And we can't even use them apart from Him empowering us and working through us. Do you believe that 3,000 people could come to faith in Jesus Christ through the ministry of the gospel with us right here? That sounds impossible to me. That sounds impossible. I have to say, I'm not that great of a preacher. I'm not that great of an evangelist. I'm not perfect. I fail. I falter. Sometimes I have weak faith. But it is possible. I have to believe it. If God can work through Peter, and if God can work through Paul, Paul, 
The man who ran around trying to throw Christians into jail. Don't forget this. If he can work through them to bring about the salvation of thousands of people, he can work through you and me. But we have to be dependent on him. We have to be dependent on him. Not think we have it in ourselves or believe the lie that strips the message of the cross from the gospel that focuses more on what we can do in and of ourselves. We have to rely on God's power. I remember really trying to learn this lesson, and I'm still learning this lesson. When I went to India, though, I was surrounded by these, these circumstances that were just bizarre. I, I, you know, the sights and the sounds and the language and, and all the bright color, just like, like, oh, got off the plane, spent about five weeks in this province of India called Andhra Pradesh, and I remember these wild boar running across the street and cows and rickshaws and, and new cars, too, all on the same road. I'm like, well, this is pretty crazy. And I, I remember just coming to the end of myself and thinking, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I, I can't reach these people. I remember my first message, my first little sermon with my team, and I remember going up to this little village, and uh, we finally got there. It was late at night. We had jet lag, and, and I'm kind of bleary-eyed, like, okay, I'm here 14, I don't know, was it 11 and a half hours, time zone change, and, and I got up to say my little, my little message, and uh, I had an interpreter, his name is Sudhir, and he was translating for me into this language called Telugu, and I was standing here thinking, okay, what am I going to say? Okay, so I just said, hi, my name is Michael, and I'm from a long way away, Michigan, and I'm here to tell you that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and then I kind of pause, this awkward pause, from hell. And I looked over at my translator, he's like, what, 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 what are you saying? <laughs> I'm like, I mean, Jesus came to save you from hell. And the way he was trying to translate in Telugu sounded to the people, it, you're kind of confused too. They were really confused, okay? They were standing, standing and sitting out there thinking, Jesus is from hell? No, 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 that doesn't work. And I'm like, wait a minute, let me correct this in English. And, you know, I, it was a mess. It was a mess. It took me five, ten minutes to sort it out. I think the interpreter just took it from there. And I'm like, oh, I just meant to say Jesus can save you, you know. But God can work through that. I remember when we went up to this little village, I'm kind of diverging in this India thing, because God showed me his power in a way I've never seen, I had never seen before when I went to serve these people in India. I went to this little mountain village called Pareru. And we uh, went to pray for these families in these villages around the area. And I remember coming to this one little hut with our team. And the mother comes out and she has a Hindu marking on her forehead. And she's holding this little baby and she's ashes around the baby's eyes. Black ashes. Which meaning they were trying to do incantations or these prayers to all these Hindu gods and goddesses to try to bring healing to this baby. And so we got through the translator that this little infant, two-week-old boy, had not slept, had not eaten anything, and was just crying incessantly, basically, for the last two weeks, ever since it was born. And the mother came out and she said, you know, she's, she's telling us this, and we found out that the husband of this family 
was a Christian, but the wife was not. She was still bound in this fear and oppression of Hinduism. And, and I'm thinking, me of McDonald's French fry size faith, you know, okay, I'm going to, you know, wow, this is a big one. <laughs> and they motioned for me to pray for this little baby boy, and I'm like, oh, okay, okay. I hadn't gone through seminary yet or anything, you know, I just like, that meant anything? I don't think so. And so I'm just like, oh, Lord, would you heal this little baby boy for your glory? Would you work this out, Lord? Would you heal this little infant? Would your healing touch come upon this for your glory so that this family can come to you? In Jesus' name, amen. Short little prayer like that. And I didn't realize this after I finished praying, but that the baby had fallen asleep, had stopped crying and fallen asleep while I was praying for the baby. And the other team member that was holding the baby boy handed the child back to the mother and she started weeping because she hadn't seen her baby sleep in two weeks. Stephanie would be weeping too. But this little child looked so sickly. I've never seen an infant look so wrinkly and scrawny. It was seriously ill. A couple weeks later, we got to go back to the village because I stayed an extra couple weeks and we met the, the, the wife or the, this mother and her child right there. She was waiting for us. And, she, and we came up to her and she said, you won't believe it. The baby's sleeping, he's eating, he's getting well and he noticeably looked healthier. But we noticed that she still had all this Hindu stuff on the baby and she still had markings on her forehead and all that she was still engrossed in that. And so we again prayed for her, we prayed for the baby. And then a few days later I went back to the United States. The whole situation still looked, you know, impossible to me. Because I'd just grown up in a normal American Christian culture, which was sort of self reliant, praying for God's spirit, but sort of counting on us to get the job done. A few days after I got back home, I got a call from my translator, this pastor, Sudhir, and he said, you won't believe who was in church this morning. He said, the mother, the little baby you prayed for, and she took off her Hindu marking, actually, and she wants to be saved, and she wants to be baptized. Hallelujah! And I'm like, hallelujah! It looked impossible. It looked totally impossible to me. But I saw God's power work in a way that only He could do. Only He could bring this mother to salvation. Only He could heal this little baby boy. The thing was interesting. These people can't read or write in their language because they don't speak the common language of the city. And they don't have the Bible in their own language. I think it was kind of unique that God chose to break through the Hindu bondage and bring healing to this little child so for his glory, so that these people could come to his son, Jesus Christ. And I've never forgotten that. But that we have to rely on God's power for the mission to be accomplished. So here's the big idea. Be dependent on God, not self-reliant. Be God-dependent, not self-reliant. Be dependent on God when you wake up in the morning. May that be the first prayer you pray. God, I need you. I cannot do this. I can't take one more step without you. I cannot accomplish this impossible-looking mission without your power, without your spirit working through me. 
when you punch into work, when you punch out of work, when things come that are difficult, maybe when a family argument comes up, or whatever it might be, or through good times, you have to realize that it's only through the power of God, and you've got to depend on Him. You've got to depend on Him. So be God-dependent, not self-reliant. A few uh, days ago, the power blew out here. How many of you had power out? Or was it just this local area? I'm going to close with this. I don't know what time it is. Oh, I lose track every time. Oh, yes. The storm blew through here. Rain swirling around. I thought it was a tornado and our power went blink. And it did not go back on for almost 12 hours. And so Stephanie and I were kind of in a panic of what to do with our groceries, and Hudson's crying, and Everlyn's wailing, and there's no light, and we're running around with flashlights and stuff, and it was crazy. It was chaos. And I just realized, as I was, I was working on this message, went to bed with no power, you know, and I'm like, we are so dependent on electrical power. We barely know how to function without it. You know, some of us have basements that are basically floating on water and we've got to get our sump pump going before our basement floats away. And, and we've got groceries in the refrigerator and all this crazy stuff and we barely can function without electrical power. But we have to think that we cannot function on God's mission without His power. To express our dependence on Him, express our submission to Him daily when we wake up, when we walk through the day, when we go to bed at night, we can only accomplish his mission through his power. That's why Paul says, I came to you not with excellency of speech or with the wisdom of men, but to preach Christ crucified. This Christ crucified, that whole idea that was, that was crazy to the Jews and ludicrous to the Gentiles. But that's the power of God. And we preach Christ crucified And we don't rely on our own power that we can do it ourselves, but on God's power because our faith does not stand on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And that way he gets all the glory. Be God-dependent, not self-reliant. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we come before you, and we need you. It looks impossible that even one or two or three or a dozen or let alone 3,000 people could come to faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, through us proclaiming Christ crucified. People laugh at that message today, God. It doesn't make sense to our minds. But we've seen you work in a powerful way this past week during neighbor gospel outreach and during our community service things and our, and our Cola Wars teen outreach. And you've shown your power, even if it's just bringing one person to yourself. It's through your power. And God, we pray tonight that we would not lose sight of the mission or how this mission can be accomplished. It's through your power and through us being dependent on you, abiding in you, expressing our submission to you, ministering through your power for your glory. We want you to get all the glory and all the honor and all the praise that's due your name. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.